Thanks for tuning into the XL Legal Podcast, an interview-based podcast for lawyers devoted to practice excellence and wellness tips. I'm your host, Shelley Appleby-Ostroff, legal talent development consultant, writing coach, and former practicing lawyer, and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jane Griesdorf about a topic that many lawyers love to hate, grammar. Jane's the founder of The Writing Consultants, a firm specializing in effective writing and grammar training for lawyers and other professionals. She's passionate about grammar and is often praised as the best grammar teacher ever. Welcome to the XL Legal Podcast, Jane. Thank you, uh, Shelley. This is great. I just clicked my cup as I took it away to keep it from clicking. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. How about getting us started by telling us why you love grammar so much? Well, I was thinking a lot about that in the past few weeks since we connected. And I know it's going to sound a bit eccentric, but, you know, when you're going for a walk or something and your mind goes free floating, I find myself thinking about a sentence and about something in the sentence, whether it would be okay to use this word or that word, or whether it's grammatically correct to use who or whom in that instance. And I guess I've just always loved grammar. Um, I studied at the time when grammar in high school counted on all your exams. So if you made an error in grammar on a chemistry exam, when you were writing about some theory, you could get up to 5% off the whole paper. So even Mm -hmm. I would never, of course, write a perfect chemistry exam, but lots of kids did. And if they had a grammar or spelling error in it, they would lose that 5%. I also took Latin and German along with French in high school and German and Latin are very, very grammar based languages. And I just ate it up. We had very good teachers and the teachers were not in charge of our final exams. There was grade 13 at that time, but our exams were marked by people down at the legislature, teachers who signed up to do that for the summer. And so our teachers during the year had a lot at stake because their reputation depended on how well their students did and the students were not marked by them. So that's a bit of history and grammar all goes into it. Yeah, so interesting. So interesting. We are definitely a product of our our upbringing, aren't we? Although, you know, there would have been a lot of other people who had been schooled in the same traditions as you were, and yet they don't share that passion. So yeah, it's it's really wonderful that it's stuck with you. And I know you do a lot of grammar sort of boosters for lawyers. uh, And I'm just wondering if you've given some thought to or if you include in your training Explain to lawyers why grammar is important. I know that I try to get that message across, but I haven't been super successful. But I'm just wondering, you know, what are some of the things that you would say uh, to a lawyer? Yeah, that's interesting. One of my courses is actually called Grammar Booster for Lawyers, and that's the sort of ultimate course. There's a Grammar Brush Up, which is a, a, a shorter course and doesn't go into as much detail. And there's even a Grammar Tease that I attach to my writing courses. I feel that grammar is so important for lawyers because, and Shelley, you're a lawyer, you're, you're <laughs> in a very esteemed profession. And the 
Other more technical reasons for grammar being important are that good grammar yields confidence and it allows writers to write with, I say, pizzazz. When you have the confidence that you're not making an error, you can let yourself go a bit and you can play with the language. You can play with an inverted sentence and, and there are rules you can break. And if you know you can break them, that can give you a lot of confidence as well. And then on a technical level or a practical level, I guess, if an error is noticed by a client, it could erode the client's confidence in your whole work. Just Mm -hmm. the way I feel if an accountant made an error in my books, I would wonder whether I could trust the accountant with my books. And that's really the same with grammar. And for junior lawyers or students, grammar errors are very annoying to their mentors. Mm -hmm. And mentors can't spend their time editing students and juniors' work. And so it's very important that junior lawyers know grammar. Yeah. Great points. Great points. Yeah. I mean, they're not billing out as at as high a rate as their mentors are. Yeah. Makes such good sense. And another thing that I struggle with when I talk to lawyers about, uh, about writing and it's the importance of editing and proofreading. Everybody says, yeah, yeah. You know, it, I, I know I should do it. But I trust my grammar checker or um, some people even have more sophisticated software. And they, how, how can we convince lawyers that you absolutely have to edit and proofread for grammar, punctuation and spelling? And any tips on how to make that a little more palatable? Well, what you just mentioned a moment ago and you identified the different points that you would look for. And when you and I were talking about this, you suggested, and it's something I'm going to uh, teach from now on, that each rereading have a specific purpose. I have to be totally transparent here. I'm a really bad proofreader. And I miss errors. And I send out an email, I look at it, you know, an hour later, and there's an error gone out under my name, the writing consultants. So <laughs> proofreading is very tricky. So one good way is to do what you're suggesting. So if you know, sometimes, for instance, I don't put a capital I. I'm, you know, a, a poor typist. So maybe that's the reason. And so I will, I'm going to start to look for all the times that that happens. I'm going to look for all the times my spacing is wrong. I'm not that worried about grammar errors, but I'm worried about technical errors that, you know, as I'm uh, articulating here. Reading aloud is an amazing help. Uh, I mumble as I write all the time. My husband will call in from the other room. What? What did you say? (laughs) Because I'm constantly mumbling. And that's good because you can hear the rhythm. You can hear cadence. You can hear your errors. You can, you're putting two senses together, the seeing and the hearing. So there's a good chance you'll catch a word that you repeat or a there, there or any of those errors we all make. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the grammar checkers, they're okay as a check but not an only check. The grammar checkers don't have a brain. Uh, later on, I'll talk to you about which and that. And very often the grammar checker will say something like, do you mean which or that? But it can't help you with how you figure that out. And the grammar <laughs> checker probably doesn't know it either. So it, it's a little bit complicated. 
I know that you're worried about the English language and what texting and Twittering and even emailing is going to do to our language. I don't worry about that so much. Remember Marshall McLuhan and the medium is the message. Yeah. I think that when I, te- when I text, I use the letter R for A-R-E. I use U for Y-O-U. I don't know a bunch of others um, that are even better. It's its own medium. I don't think it means that we're all going to go to hell, you know, because of it. I think that we can differentiate. And if we're writing a formal letter, even if it's, you know, going to be sent out by email, it will be more like the letters we used to write on linen stationery. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you say that because I'm, I'm so concerned when I'm texting, I never use R, like just the letter R, the letter U to represent words, um, because I'm terrified that I'm going to see that it's so efficient and, you know, that'll carry over into my more formal writing. But, you know, I, I, I think you've got a point. Uh, I think we do see the difference between the different sort of, um, the different audiences, the different purposes for which we're writing. Um, yeah. So fingers crossed. We'll see what the next generation turns out in terms of uh, their final written products, though. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> I may be totally wrong, but I won't be around to know. <laughs> So I'm just wondering, you know, you've been you've been teaching grammar and uh, particularly to lawyers for such a long time, and I I bet there are some sort of errors that you're seeing time and time again that lawyers tend to make. Just wondering if you might go through some of them and and perhaps provide some tips on how we might avoid making them in the beginning. It would be my pleasure because I know you, everybody's going to say lady get a life, but. Grammar excites me. I think it is so much fun. I was never good in math. And I think maybe grammar appeals to the part of the brain that knows how to do math. So you lawyers out there are good in math, have heart. Um, I I like to think of grammar and teaching it uh, as having a different slant than we traditionally learned when we were in school. I want you, you all know how to, you know, think like a lawyer. I would encourage lawyers to think like an editor. Hmm. And if you think like an editor as you're writing, you, of course, you know, you'll be writing with all your facts and everything either up your sleeve or beside you on a, on, uh, on notes. So you'll be able to have the, <clears throat> the leeway to concentrate on your writing. Come writing. And, you know, that's one of the reasons, of course, to use a plan before you write, because you don't want to be thinking about anything else when you're writing. You don't want to be fact checking. You don't want to be making sure that your argument is going to be strong enough on one point as opposed to another. That you have to do before you write. And then you, when you write, you're thinking about beauty, you're thinking about grammar, you're, it's, a, it's an entirely different process. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I, I wish I could convince lawyers, I, I, know it's, I know it is time consuming, but at the end, it isn't time consuming, it's time saving to write from a plan. Don't just sit down and move your hands along the keyboard. Now, yeah. that's the bell you just heard. <laughs> And you're probably saying, oh, God, that's annoying. It's the last time you'll hear it. But what I do in the courses I teach 
is I put that little bell in to show a grammar error or a grammar warning. And I want to make my lawyers a bit miserable, a (laughs) bit annoyed, because if they can internalize that alarm, because it sounds like I'll do it again just to annoy everyone. (laughs) So if they can develop that alert, that will be a good thing. Now, it's a hard thing, too, because they might develop it for every time they see the word who or whom, and I'll go into that later, or every time they say the, see the word which as opposed to that, and they'll go, you know, again, we'll go into it later. But it's important for these alerts to be in the lawyer's brain. I love that. I love that. That's great. Already, I mean, I, 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 can, I can see the value, and I'll... <laughs> Not to say that it's annoying to my core, but I mean, I can see how I'd really want to avoid hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness, that's so funny, Jane. Um, so, some of the common grammar errors that you've seen over the years. Well, let's let's begin with vocabulary, and and it can be very scary. You know, I am indeed, and I I have to be upfront about this, the English teacher that you thought you'd never see again in your life. I taught for 20 years or so, and in the mid, uh, well, I'm going to give a lot away if I say in the mid-80s, but in the mid-80s, a friend asked me to help his boys, he called them. Now, his boys were about age 35 or older. They were double ringed. They had uh, engineering rings on their finger, and they also had MBAs. But my friend was so worried, he was an engineer, that his boys could get him sued because of all the errors in their reports, the writing (laughs) errors. And he asked me to come down and do a session. And so I you know, invented something for it. And um, after that, I really found I liked teaching adults a lot more than teenagers because I had teenagers myself. So uh, I segued into the writing consultants and I took a year from teaching, then another and another. You were allowed to take three years. And finally, I just bit the bullet and uh, opened the writing consultants as my full-time job. So the vocabulary is going to remind you of your English teacher, and I hope you won't break out into hives. <laughs> and you may not know all this vocabulary because, again, in the school system, once semestering came in, and probably everyone listening to this podcast was semestered in high school, we could not give you the same amount of grammar as we did when you had a full year in an English class. We went down from seven 40-minute periods to five one-and-a-half-hour periods so that we could finish one whole year in January, at the end of January. And it, it doesn't work the same way. It does not equal out because kids can't, teenagers can't concentrate for an hour and a half. Whereas when we had 40-minute periods, there would be 70 40-minute periods in a week for English alone, and three of them were spent on grammar and writing, mm-hmm. and four on literature. So, I, you know, don't be upset if you don't know this vocabulary. Words like pronoun, adjective, adverb, preposition, subordinate clause, an M dash, an N dash, these are very scary sounding words, but we <laughs> need them to discuss grammar. So how about if I start with sentence structure errors? Is that love it? Yeah. 
So we have fragments. Those are sentences that aren't a full sentence. We have run-ons. That's, that isn't like an esoteric run-on that you run on with too many words. It, it is literally that you run on without a stop of a period or a semicolon uh, or a, a conjunction or something like that. Okay. We have comma splices. We have something called conjunctive adverbs. So here's the fun part. Here's where I can show how understanding grammar can improve the coherence of a document. It can add those good things that I heard uh, Steve Armstrong talk about, like reader awareness. Why? Because the manner in which you structure a sentence adds to the reader's understanding of your meaning. So if you care about your, your reader, you will want to do as much as you can in your sentence structuring to help that reader. Mm-hmm. Here's where I can talk about the musicality of a sentence, about imparting rhythm or building a sentence to a climax by ri- running it up in a crescendo, just like music. Yeah. Should I give you some examples? I love it. Yeah. And I, I love the idea of, you know, running, run on and fragments and yeah, yeah. It's hard to talk about something without giving some examples in uh, otherwise, I'm in a, va- uh, a vacuum. So here's a sentence. Careful editors check each word, and I try to do this too. If the s- sentence had just stopped or, or hadn't stopped with the and, if it had said, careful editors check each word, and I try to do this too, that would have been okay. But if you omitted the and and just said they check each word, I try to do this too, that's a run on. So how do you fix it? One way is coordinate linkage, as I just showed you, putting in a coordinate conjunction. And they're easy. They join two equal things. Or you could use a subordinate conjunction. So you look at the two ideas. Careful editors check each word. That's idea one. I try to do this too. That's idea two. T-W-O. But which one affects the other? Isn't it really that because careful editors choose or check each word, I try to do this too? So you've gone from ordinary connection with an ordinary word like and to a subordinate connection where you begin with the subordinate clause and you lead up to the climax. And the reason this is helping a reader is you are doing the brain work for the reader. You're showing the reader the connection. With a simple word like and, the reader has to think, well, how is that connected? Right. right now, right. you're probably distracted from what I'm saying because I began a sentence with the word because. You knew exactly where I was going, uh, where I was going to go. Exactly what I was going to ask you. (laughs) So the reason teachers taught you, and it was when you were very young, maybe grade one or two, and it happened all over the world in many different languages. The reason you were taught not to start a sentence with because is that little kids write fragments And a fragment is a sentence like this, because careful editors check each word, period, point. Mm -hmm. 
because my dog ate my homework, period. So the teacher comes in and says, never start a sentence with because. And she thinks that that is going to help the readers, sorry, the writers, the young kids to never have a fragment. She doesn't say never start a sentence with when, never start a sentence with although, never start a sentence with if. Yet all of those are subordinate conjunctions. It's only the because one, because little kids use it so frequently. It's so interesting because that, that is one of the things I hear people um, you know, say that, wow, I can start a sentence with because like you've just rocked my world. I was taught you know, from the time I could make a sentence, never, never start a sentence with because. Yeah, interesting. I love it. Yeah, I love that that history. And don't forget that readers are very smart. When you start a sentence with although, something instantly happens in the reader's brain because they know that's a concession. So they get ready. You know, many uh, lawyers use a very small arsenal of words to show something like although. They have however or therefore. These are these uh, conjunctive adverbs that require special punctuation. But something like although really helps a reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you say, it sets you up. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes. And could we use while in place of? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not a stickler on that. And and by the way, you know, you and I were talking about rules we can break. So yeah. there's one about the because that you can absolutely break that rule. It, the rules that we think we can't break are not rules. They're little pet peeves that English teachers have developed over the years. You know, you can't split an infinitive. Of course you can. So an infinitive is the verb part that has the two. I want to, your infinitive is about to come up. I want to carefully check that document. We learned in school that you would have to write, we want to check that document carefully. But when you split the infinitive, you're really emphasizing the carefully part. And there's no rule anywhere that you can't split an infinitive. You can search forever. And it's not a rule. It's just a pet beef. Yeah, I think Star Trek sort of um, turned that on its head. That's to right. totally go. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Other sentence structure errors or? Well, you know, I, I'm, t- I'm looking at my watch and I want to make sure. Have we already been talking about 20 minutes? I think close. It's, it's going well, fast. Okay, well, yeah. I'm going to move on a little bit. I'm going to move um, to pronoun case, if that's okay with you, because I want, there are certain things I want to make sure that the lawyers hear. And pronoun case is from hell, and there's no doubt about it. Uh, we have a subject, an object, a possessive. You have all the, those columns that I like to give out because, you know, I becomes me, becomes mine. Uh, he becomes him, becomes his. She becomes her. They become them. These are all tricky. And of course, on that list, it's who and whom. Mm-hmm. And that's enough to give anyone a breakdown. But it's really, <laughs> I, it's really quite easy. I'll give a trick that I don't like. I don't like tricks, but I'll give you one here. Okay. If you can replace the who or whom with 
he, you'll use who. So who came there? You wouldn't say him came there. You would say he came there. But if you were to say, to whom did you give it? You would never say to he, to he did you give it. You'd say to him. So if it has a name on it, you would replace the, the whom with him. If it doesn't have an M, you'd replace the he with who or the she with who. Oh, that's so helpful. Excellent. Yeah. Um, And another thing that bugs me, and lawyers do it, um, is misusing the myself, yourself, herself. Those are called reflexive or emphatic pronouns. So you can't use them as a simple object. An object is the receiver of the action. So Peter saw him. Whom did Peter see? Peter saw him. Peter saw him and myself at the hearing. That kills me. Peter saw him. Peter saw me. So myself can only be used and all the self pronouns as what we call reflexive. So Peter consoled himself about the loss, because now the himself is acting right back on the Peter. Poor Peter. He consoled himself. He's hugging himself about the loss. And the other way we can use it is to be emphatic. Peter himself saw us there. And that's, that those are the two ways, not for a simple Peter saw him and me. Right. You know, this has to, everything I'm talking about has to do with speaking as well, because you don't want to take a client out for lunch and make a grammar error as you're eating your appetizer. I mean, this is crazy. (laughs) But I think that we're a lot, as uh, as listeners, we're more forgiving when someone is speaking, as opposed to when you see something in writing and someone's made a grammar mistake. I, I can't imagine that um, anyone could speak without making a grammar error because our brains move so much faster than our, and we're able to speak. So that is true. Although I have a friend and I love her, so I've never, ever corrected her. I want her to remain my friend. She'll say something like, there is no one as involved in the firm as her. So if you look at that, those three columns of subject, object, and possession, or possessive, her is in the objective column. Whereas in this sentence, we really are saying there's no one as involved in the firm as she is. That's called ellipsis. It's there, but not there. And so in speaking, I find something like that. uh, You know, I don't want to be a crudmudgeon, but I find it glaring. Like it's, it's bothersome. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I get it. And once you're attuned to it, like it's really hard to move beyond it and you hear things more because you're much more aware of them. Yeah. So pronouns, I love that. Super, super helpful. And something else you had mentioned um, to me was the subject and verb having to agree. That subject verb agreement, it's a whole other arena. I won't go into it because time is running away from us so quickly. But, you know, for a collective noun, for instance, 
uh, you're, you're not going to want to write uh, the team are playing really well with their quarterback. The team is playing really well. The jury is in session. Now, when they break up, the jury are marking their ballots. That's different because they're no longer a unit. But the jury is in session and it is announcing its ITS, by the way, no apostrophe, its verdict. Okay. And then what about the team? The team is playing well. They are listening to, now that's where it becomes tricky. Technically, good question, Shelley. The team is playing well and it is or they are listening to their quarterback or its quarterback. We break the rule so that there is a little bit of warmth in our writing. And that's a very difficult thing to discern. So I've just given you a rule and then given you permission to break it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and that's happening a lot with gender things too, which I won't go into. But we right. always, you know, we, we did that his, her thing. Now we can say there and there's a whole other vocabulary that is robust to, to do this. Yeah. Great points. Great points. Other errors. I hear a lot of people make a good and well error and a bad and badly error. So the thing with, with good and well, is that good is an adjective and well is an adverb. Well becomes an adjective when referring to health. Now, what the heck does that mean? It's easier than it sounds. So here are some examples. She's a good pianist who plays well. That's pretty pretty standard. You're looking good today. Now, there's no action there. In fact, that's called a copula verb. Talk about a sexy uh, grammar lesson when you teach copula verbs. Uh, If anyone wants to know more about them, just go into Dr. Google. Dr. Google does that very well. Copula is the word, C-O-P-U-L-A or copular, C-O-P-U-L-A-R, same word. So she's a good pianist who plays well, but you're looking good today means you're looking jazzy. You're looking well means that yesterday you were sick and someone says to you, you're looking well today as you're cold over. So I like those to be used correctly. Yes, yes. And I mean, is, is this something that we can do sort of in intuitively? Like you're saying it, and when I hear the differences, I go, yeah, that makes sense. But I get the sense sometimes that when I sort of follow this intuitive rule, oh, it sounds right. I don't really know why it's right. Yeah, we, a lot of people talk about that a lot. I mean, they just say, well, I let my ear, but our ears have been ruined, Shelley. That's the problem. Because so many people are saying, um, he's smarter than me. Instead, he's, of, he's smarter than I am. So me sounds perfect. Now, you know, just to offset that, there is a, a whole field of grammar out there that says, well, when you write or say uh, he's smarter than, we're taking than as a preposition. Uh, for instance, if you said he's smart like me, that would be perfect because like is a preposition and like requires what we call the objective case. And me is in the objective column. I is in the subjective. 
So they're saying that when you say he's smarter than me, it's okay because we've turned than into a preposition. Now, I don't agree, but in French, they have the, the disjunctive pronoun, the pronoun disjunctif, and it would be que moi, not que je. Right. So there is an argument out there. <laughs> I, I'm probably mixing everyone up more than I'm helping, but that's, the, that's why grammar is so much fun. Yeah, we can really mix everybody up. Yeah. Well, are you saying then that there are rules, but there's also ways to break those rules as long as you do it knowing that you're breaking them, like knowing what the rule is, then you can break the rule? I think in a way, yes. But on the other hand, rules can be so important. For instance, here's one that is involving adjectives and adverbs. So what would you say here? I'm going to ask you, Shelley. No, the movie, <laughs> the movie. This one's a good one to ask you. I promise. The okay. movie. De- the movie depicted violence too vicious or too viciously for my taste. Too well, viciously. Yeah. Okay. So if you say that, it's perfect, and you are emphasizing the depicting. The movie depicted it viciously. The movie depicted violence too viciously for my taste. But if you want to emphasize the noun violence, then you'll need an adjective. The movie depicted violence too vicious for my taste. Mm -hmm. Now do you hear the difference? And Mm -hmm. that's where grammar can help you be a better writer. Because if you are writing something for the law and you want to talk about you know, the depiction and how it was so unfair to a certain category of whatever, people or whatever, you would want to emphasize the verb. If you want to emphasize how vicious the criminal was because of his violence, then you would use the word vicious, vicious violence, rather than depicted viciously. So it can make a huge difference. Yeah. And what about using punctuation to make those kinds of, um, you know, differentiations? Absolutely. And, you know, some people don't like the semicolon. I think the semicolon is a great piece of punctuation. It speaks to the reader. It says, reader, stop, because a, a, a semicolon equals a gentle period. So it's saying to the reader, stop, but don't even take a sip of your coffee because I'm moving right on on the same subject. I love the semicolon. I've I've worked with lawyers who say I never touch it, (laughs) but I don't think that's something to be proud of. Well, I think we're afraid. I'll speak for myself. I'm afraid to use it because I don't think that I know how to use it properly. So before I use it, I'll always look for a sentence that is structured in a way I think I want to structure my sentence. So I try to find a model. And oftentimes that's just too much work. So I'm kind of in that camp of avoiding the semicolon because I'm sure I'm going to be using it wrong. Yeah, Yeah. I I sympathize with you there. And I think maybe that's why some lawyers say they never touch it. And that's legitimate. But that's the reason I give my courses. I'm giving one for the Law Society in June uh, for the lawyers. I'm giving one for the uh, uh, paralegals in May. 
uh, and you can you can see the dates on uh, my website, May 13th, and the lawyers is June 14th. I want to give them that ammunition because when they leave that webinar, they'll have a curriculum with them and they can look up the rules for the uh, semicolon. I think the main thing about punctuation is that you can't wing it. It's mm-hmm. really dangerous. You can't be typing along and say to yourself, you know what? I haven't had one in a while and stick in a comma. And then after it's in, you look up uh, at your screen and you say, you know what? One on the diagonal, four sentences above would look good there, too. I mean, you <laughs> cannot wing the comma. There are the rules for the comma are frightening. Uh, the rules for the semicolon aren't quite as frightening, but there are rules. Mm-hmm. And for the M dash, like when do you use a dash and when do you use a, a full stop uh, or a What's, semicolon? Okay. So what's the difference between an M dash? Like there's an M dash and there's a, what other kind and of dash? There's an N dash. Oh, so the yeah. N has to do with numbers. And be, because I'm not that mathematical, um, I can't even cite the rules. I have to look it up in my own curriculum every time I, I do it. But the N dash is, is the size of an N the letter N. An M dash oh. is a double N. So it's the size of an M. Now, when I write, I put a space on either side of an M dash. And on my computer, it's very easy because I'm a Mac person. But I put a space because aesthetically, I like the way it looks on my slides. And I even like the way it looks in my written curriculum. But apparently, lawyers should not put a space on either side. Now, some are starting to, but your M dashes should be without a space on either side. And an M dash is casual. You know, I left my umbrella on the subway dash. And I, of course, it's an M dash. I was soaked the rest of the darn day. That's casual. Mm -hmm. I left my computer on the subway. Now, here's an interesting piece of punctuation, colon. I'll tell you why in a moment. So I'm going to repeat (laughs) the sentence. I left my computer on the subway, colon. A loss that took me five weeks to recover because that is dire. So the colon, I call it the eccentric colon. You know, we know to use a colon to set up a long quote and all the other reasons you use a colon, but this one's eccentric. You put it in to jar the reader. I love that. I love that. And I think lawyers are a bit reticent to use punctuation creatively like that. Exactly. Uh, And it, it can be so helpful. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And oh, it just it just got me thinking too. You had sort of plugged this at the beginning of our discussion. The difference between that and which, because that's what we're talking about commas and okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'll, what's the scoop? Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one more fun example, and then I'll go right to it. Okay. So a dangling element in a sentence, and don't try to teach danglers to grade nine (laughs) students, but a dangling element or a misplaced modifier or faulty reference, they're all under the same category. And they occur when, as a writer, you write something that you are so sure of, but the reader doesn't hear it that way. So I saw a man walking his dog in his pajamas. So, you know, immediately you're thinking it sounds as if the walker of the dog 
uh, sorry, it sounds as if the dog is in his pajamas. I saw a man walking his dog in his pajamas. Now, that's one I can never get because my dog, I can't mention his name because he's in the next room, but my dog wears pajamas every night in the winter. So to me, I don't get that one. But do you hear to a regular person that I saw a man walking his dog in his pajamas? It sounds as if the dog is in the pajamas. Not the man. Yeah. Right. Now, how do we fix these danglers? And that gets us into which and that. So here's one. I invite my lawyers to go on what we used to call a witch hunt, only witch spelled W-H-I-C-H. And that's a very hard thing to do because most people use the word witch, W-H-I-C-H, so frequently. But here's an example of a witch error. They let the payment date slip by which they later regretted. Well, what is which referring to? And what this is why it comes under this category of misplaced elements. Are they referring to the payment date? They let the payment date slip by, which they later regretted. Not really. It's not the same as the cup, which is in my hand. So which must have a single definite antecedent. There's no doubt about it that the cup, which is in my hand, the witch is referring to the cup, but they let the payment date slip by. You're referring to the whole idea. So here's how we correct that witch error and how we use that instead. So we have to find a compendious word, we call it. It's like a suitcase word that can hold the whole idea of letting the payment date slip by. So how about this one? They let the payment date slip by an oversight that they later regretted. Mm. And mm. First of all, it's so much more elegant, and that's why knowing grammar can help you be a better writer. You've helped the reader more by labeling what it means to let a payment date slip by, and you've used that because the clause following it is essential. We could have said they let the payment day slip by an oversight they later regretted. So there's no comma before the word that. We can even omit it because it's what we call an essential. The grammar books call it, unfortunately, a restrictive clause. It restricts the meaning. Whereas which is preceded by a comma and a comma after the clause if it's in a sandwich effect because it is non-essential. Here's an example. Tuesday, which happens to be my birthday, comma, comma, who cares, <laughs> is the only day that I am available to meet you. We can't comma off that I'm available to meet you because it's essential to the meaning. We wouldn't understand that the core sentence is Tuesday is the only day, I'm going to admit it, I'm available to meet you. <laughs> Shelly, I could go on and on, uh, but I was going to say, players can't listen on and on. <laughs> but it's like, it's so much, you make it so much fun. Like, I just can't believe that we've been talking for so long about 
grammar and then I'm wanting more. So um, I'm just so thrilled that you're going to be offering these webinars coming up. And you'd mentioned the two, one for paralegals, one for uh, lawyers. But I think you'd also mentioned to me that there's one coming up for the, that you're oh, doing there, for the Advocate Society. Yeah, as there well. is. I better get cracking on it. It's, it's February 15th. <laughs> it's on my agenda to start. <laughs> so fantastic. Yeah, the Advocate Society is actually a grammar booster. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're Excellent. calling it that. I think we may be calling it finishing touches, but okay. Okay. it's code for grammar. And if someone listening is interested in learning more about those webinar, webinars, would they find all the information on your website? Yes, they will. If I, I have to make sure my website is totally up to date, but they'll find it under courses uh, okay. on the left-hand side. They can write me an email. My, my, my email is there. Okay, fantastic. So I'll I'll put a link to your website uh, in the show notes as well. But Jane, thank you so much. That was so much fun. What a treat. And as I, I always learn something from you when we speak, and I am hoping that, well, I have no doubt that listeners have as well. And you may have just inspired some lawyers to become more interested in grammar. And like, what could be better than that? I hope so. It's a lot of fun, but you have to work on it. Yeah, yeah. Super. Well, thanks again, Jane. What a treat. My pleasure, Shelley. Thanks for joining me today on the XL Legal Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'm always looking for topic and guest ideas. So if you have any suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you at XLLegal.com. That's E-X-E-L-L-E-G-A-L. Dot com.